Welcome everyone to Imperfect Leaders. We invite the country's most powerful leaders and ask them to be totally vulnerable and share their wisdom, their life lessons, and their practical advice. If you want to join our community of imperfect leaders and are truly committed to continuously leveling up your leadership skills, check us out at www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's show. Spencer Raskoff is the legendary founder and CEO of iconic startups, including Zillow, Hotwire, and most recently, Picasso, a real estate company that is totally democratizing second home ownership. Raskoff knows a thing or two about creating legendary brands that tap into the deepest of human emotions and desires, a skill that I think all great entrepreneurs possess. Spencer Raskoff has already proven himself to be a Hall of Fame player, an entrepreneur and a leader who knows how to build billion dollar brands. Now he's ready for his next big challenge in life. Instead of being on the front line as a CEO, he's pivoting to become a world-class coach who can guide and mentor and inspire future entrepreneurs and leaders. I really enjoyed Spencer's insight and authenticity, and I hope you will too. I want to start uh, with Picasso. It's a it's a sexy, cool company, and I I believe it's the fastest growing unicorn ever. So, what is Picasso, and how did it become the world's fastest unicorn? So, I started Picasso a couple years ago with another colleague who I worked with at Zillow, and the mission of Picasso is to to, to democratize access to second home ownership, and. You know, if anyone, any listeners who have been fortunate enough to own a second home, you know what an enormous impact it can have on your life and your family's life and your happiness. Um, and yet second homes are really inaccessible and unaffordable for most people. And so the solution that we've come up with at Picasso is co-ownership. And so the way it works at Picasso is you can buy an eighth, a quarter, half of a home, and you co-own that home with other folks that you don't know. And Picasso does the property management. You schedule visits to your home using the Picasso app. And so it's really seamless, um, easy second home ownership. So there's a bunch of people all over the world that co-own this home with me. I mean, what happens exactly. if I come back and they trash it or they burn it to the <laughs> ground when I'm not there? Yeah. So, so for example, I have a Picasso in Malibu. I own one eighth of it, which is about six weeks a year. I have no idea who owns the other seven eighths. Uh, might be seven individuals. It might be one or two. I, I don't know. And, um, you know, whenever I want to visit my home, I schedule a visit on the Picasso app. And the answer is you don't have to worry about somebody burning down the house or trashing it because Picasso deals with all that. Picasso does the property management. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's held to a hotel quality level of service. And you just show up and you enter the access code and there are owner lockers on site. So I keep, you know, I keep my my family photos and my surfboard and other things at the property. You can keep skis or, you know, whatever else um, you want to keep at your home. And it works really seamlessly. We have thousands of, of uh, happy owners around the world. We're in 40 markets in four countries. Well, you're right, Malibu. I know I can't afford a place in the homes I would like to own in Malibu. Right. What other what other kinds of cool places are you in? Well, yeah, so that's the exact use case, right? I mean, um, uh, you know, people, maybe they have $500,000 to spend on a second home and that won't get you very much in Malibu, but it can get you, you know, it can get you an eighth of a $4 million home. And that is on the beach. That is nice. And so a lot of people use, <clears throat> use Picasso to sort of supercharge their buying power and end up with that ski in ski out property or that beachfront property that they couldn't have afforded if they were buying the whole home. 
Um, we're in markets like Tahoe, Aspen, uh, Vail, <clears throat> um, uh, La Jolla, Santa Barbara, Malibu, Florida, um, South Carolina, uh, London, Spain, Cabo. So you name it, we're we're there or getting there soon. Man, I, I, where do I sign up for a job scouting new locations for you guys? That sounds like a dream job. What about New York, a city like New York City? I mean, since yeah. so many people have left during the pandemic, I'm sure many folks would at least like to have a presence there. Yeah, so a pied de in, in New York is something that a lot of people would love to have but can't necessarily afford. And uh, and so we're not currently in New York City, but we hope to be at some point in the near future. And I think Picasso will do really well there. That urban use case, like a New York City, we're already seeing great success in Miami and London. Um, although most of our homes are in resort destinations, sort of typical second home destinations, mm-hmm. I think it will. I think Picasso will do really well in those cities. Uh, do you get a lot of pushback from some of the the communities or from the neighbors saying, "Hey, we don't want a party house next to us"? Sometimes we do, and you know, it's a it's a misperception that we have to overcome because it's not a party house. It's a home that's owned by people that treat it like their own home. It's not a short term rental. It's not an Airbnb. It's it's owned. It's co owned. And the benefit to the community is that that home actually gets used. The the problem with a lot of these second home communities, like in a Napa Valley or or Tahoe is during peak season, they're very busy, but off season, they're ghost towns and there's no money in the community and the restaurants and bars and the other local services that rely on these homes to be occupied. So we think Picasso is actually very good for these communities because the home's utilization rates are a lot higher because multiple people own them, but they're not party houses because people treat them like their own home because it is. You know, you're buying real property. This is another important benefit of Picasso. You are actually the owner, the true owner through an LLC of a quarter, an eighth, a half of that particular home. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I know you're in New York, but, um, you know, we're in um, we're in the Jersey Shore. We're not in the Hamptons quite yet, but we're in the Jersey Shore. We do really well in South Florida with New Yorkers. So think about well, it. Well, <laughs> listen, I think, it's, I think it's one of the coolest companies ever. So congratulations. And it's not doesn't surprise me that it's a big unicorn. Um, let's take a step back in time. I mean, tell me about where you grew up and, you know, what were your parents like and what was Spencer Raskoff like as a kid? <laughs> sure. Um, I grew up in New York, um, actually Upper East Side until I was 12. And then uh, I went to Dalton and my mom was a teacher there. My dad was originally an accountant and then he became a business manager and tour producer for rock groups. And so most of my childhood growing up, he was in the music business and and we'd go to a lot of concerts and, and he'd produce tours for the Rolling Stones and U2, David Bowie, Paul Simon, Pink Floyd, many others. Well, Bowie. if I wasn't jealous enough hearing about Picasso, <laughs> now you have to tell me about that. But <laughs> I'm trying to understand this dynamic. Yeah. Your dad, your your mom was a teacher at a private school and your dad was a, a producer for the Rolling Stones. What was that dynamic like? Well, yeah, I mean, my, my dad was... Um, a, a great entrepreneur and innovator and and business person in the music industry, but he was not, you know, he was he was much more accountant than rock star. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he was really a, a you know a business person who just happened to be in, in the music industry. He didn't party with these folks. He 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 managed them and and managed their business affairs. <laughs> did, did you get to meet any of those bands? Or I did. You? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've met I've met many uh, you know many prominent musicians and, and, uh, and clients of his, but, you know, again, like, I mean, the way he always, he, he viewed it sort of like the way movie producers think of movies where, um, they're putting up capital, they're creating the, the, the product, the talent, the, the cast of the, of the film, 
is just that it's it's talent and um the and and the producer of the movie is sort of the, the business person behind it sort of the ceo of the movie and that's that was basically his role on these tours was he was essentially the ceo of these tours which were basically startups mm-hmm. and so um that i mean i i grew up watching him do a new startup every couple months it would be okay we're going to do the u2 tour which would be 500 employees would have to be hatched from scratch and work for a couple of years and generate a couple hundred million of revenue. And then at the end of the couple of years, the business would sort of fold mm-hmm. and um, until it until it restarted. So rock tours are basically startups one after another. And, and so do you think looking back that you learned a lot of, or that was your first education about startups? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I learned a lot um, about the importance of building a team and, um, making sure that it's mission oriented and and having the right camaraderie in the in the organization and having the right balance of subject matter experts with generalists and uh, conflict resolution between um, you know between people, especially on the talent side, and, and maybe even learning a little bit about how to manage these big egos. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, I mean, like whether it's a a CTO and a chief product officer that you know are locking horns, or it's a lead singer and a guitarist that are locking horns. It's you know ultimately the role of the CEO of the tech company or the producer of that tour is to make peace and keep the peace and make sure that everybody remembers why they're there and what the greater good is that they're trying to serve, whether it's building great software that will delight tens of millions of users or creating a great concert experience to delight the hundreds of thousands of, of, uh, of people in the audience. I mean, it's, it's actually not that far afield. So yes, I, I learned that for sure. So then eventually you end up going to Harvard and I always think about these like different kinds of people that go to Harvard. I mean, and I know I'm wrong, but were you more of like an athlete, a nerd or like a Mark Zuckerberg type inventing some cool company in your dorm room? Um, I was I was probably none of those three archetypes. Um, I certainly wasn't an athlete. I mean, I did you know I played some sports in high school, but I certainly wasn't collegiate level, uh, and I wasn't really a, a super nerd. I was you know in high school I was a sort of all around person. So I was editor editor of the high school newspaper and uh, president of the school, and smart but not super smart. I'd say so. No, I wouldn't call myself as you know a huge nerd. Um, I majored in government at Harvard and, um, you know, Harvard back then and even Harvard today doesn't actually offer any business classes at the undergraduate level. It's a liberal arts college. And so the what I learned in college was how to think, how to inquire, how to learn, how to write, uh, but not anything about business. I mean, I I took accounting at MIT as a cross registrant because Harvard College doesn't offer accounting. Um, and so when you go to a liberal arts school, you learn these incredible lifelong skills, but none of them are directly applicable to, to your your career. You have to learn those skills on the job. But yet, like all those things are applicable to your career and to your life. If you say like how to learn and how to think, absolutely. How to persuade people, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I have this conversation with my kids all the time and I now have a, a, a daughter who just started senior year. So she's applying to colleges and you know, talking about the pros and cons of a liberal arts school versus a pre-professional, like an undergraduate business school. And and there are pros and cons. I'm very, very grateful for the liberal arts education that I got at Harvard and, and think it's invaluable in business, but it is not, um, you know, it's not, it's not subject 
related. So I didn't take a class on marketing. I didn't take a class on business strategy. And like they don't offer those classes at, at a place like Harvard undergrad. If your kids knew that they wanted to be on, or if they know right now they want to be, you know, big successful entrepreneurs, would you recommend a liberal arts college? That's a great question. Um, if yes, uh, yes, if they are um, uh, sort of enough of a self-starter to seek out additional education elsewhere. So, for example, my first job out of college at Goldman Sachs, um, you know, I didn't know anything. Like, and I was sitting next to somebody who went to Wharton undergrad, and he knew everything. I mean, you know, what's a discount cash flow analysis? What's an internal rate of return? You know, why did what is how do bond prices impact stock price? Like, I didn't I didn't know any of that. And he had taken four years of classes in that. And so, um, if you're the type of person that can go and learn that on the side. And which I did, then I think the foundational benefits of a liberal arts education are are invaluable. Um, but it, it, I mean, and you can always go to business school later to get an MBA if you want more a more academic setting to learn those types of skills. So yes, I'm a proponent of liberal arts, but uh, but you have to be a certain type of person to to do that. And I had Doug Leone on this show from Sequoia, and he said the worst thing an aspiring entrepreneur could do was go to work for McKinsey or an investment bank right out of school. <laughs> was he right, or did you learn some valuable things when well, you were Sachs and TPG? So he's sort. I, I I I would agree, but he's being a little. I agree with him, but he's being a little controversial, you know, uh, intentionally. So here's what I would say: the two years that I spent straight out of college at Goldman Sachs as an investment banker were very useful. I learned a lot about work ethic and about capital markets and about what makes companies succeed and fail. And um, But the, the problem with going into investment banking or consulting is sometimes you never leave. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of friends who woke up in their mid-30s and had just kind of sleepwalked their way to a managing director role at an investment bank or consulting firm and were pretty unhappy with with their path. They were very highly compensated, um, but they were pretty unhappy with where they ended up because the the golden handcuffs get pretty hard to break the longer you're there. So so I would agree with Doug that if you know you want to be an entrepreneur, it's okay to start your career in that type of a role foundationally, but keep your eye on the prize and sort of get out while your opportunity cost is on the lower side. Cause once you get in your late twenties and you have a spouse and a mortgage and a dog and a kid, and you're, you're, you're printing a pretty big bonus every year, it becomes harder and harder to leave that life. Yeah. So those golden handcuffs are real. Um, I mean, tell me how you then uh, decided to start this first company. Did it sort of, was it an offshoot of working at TPG? It was. Yeah. So my first startup was a company called Hotwire, which we incubated within TPG. So it was, um, you know, it, there was a lot of luck involved, sort of right place, right time. I, I left Goldman Sachs to go to TPG, which is a private equity and venture capital firm. And we were incubating this idea of creating an airline owned consortium company that would be in the discount travel space. And we got six airlines together and TPG. And I was the junior person, the 23 year old working on this deal, writing the business plan, getting the foundational documents of the company created. And, um, and then eventually the the junior partner and I that were working on the deal, we decided to leave TPG to go and run it ourselves um, with TPG's blessing. So it and and that became Hotwire. And um, you know, there's no there's no question that luck plays an important role in at least in it has in my career, but I think in most people's career. But 
luck is also what happens when preparation meets opportunity. So I saw an opportunity there. I decided to take a risk of leaving private equity to go to this startup in 1999. And uh, you know, I'm very glad that I did. And it was more well-suited to my personality and what I wanted to do, which was be in an entrepreneurial, nimble environment than being in a private equity firm. But but you say preparation and luck meeting, but what did you do while you were a TPG to make sure you were prepared and positioned when the opportunity came around other than what everyone else at TPG did? Well, I mean, there were other people, there were other colleagues of mine that didn't want to take that risk of, I mean, I don't remember the exact numbers at the time, but I was probably making, you know, $200,000 a year as a 22 year old, 23 year old, which, and this is $1999, which is a crazy amount of money for a young person to be making at a private, you know, and it's because I was at one of the largest private equity firms in the world. And I decided to leave that job for a, I don't remember, probably a dollars $50,000 salary at this startup in exchange for a lot of equity. Uh, so I was willing to take a risk and some others weren't. And I was also willing to put myself in a, um, in a very nebulous uh, career track. So, you know, my first job at that at that company, I was co-founder and I think my title was nice and vague. It was VP of corporate development, which kind of meant I could do whatever. I was the CFO for a while. I ran strategy for a while. I ran the hotel business for a while. I you know did all sorts of different stuff. And that's very a very different career path. A start, a startups. I mean, there were two employees when we first started, just Carl and me. And um, it's there's a lot of uncertainty about what that will look like as compared with investment banking or consulting or private equity where it's you know very much keep your head down and just punch the clock and within a couple of years you'll be a principal and then a vice president and then a managing director and your you know your your path is set and clear but that psychological makeup is interesting because not everyone a has that risk tolerance and not everyone has that ability to handle this nebulous you know uncertain kind of ambiguity and then, and then what did come next? So we sold hotwire to Expedia, which was based in Seattle. And my wife had gotten into medical school in Seattle. And so we moved from both moved from San Francisco to Seattle. I went to work at Expedia and her to go to medical school. So I started working at the parent company of our, you know, of hotwire. Mm-hmm. And I was there for about a year and um, it didn't, uh, you know, it, it didn't stick. <laughs> I wanted to be in a more entrepreneurial environment, a smaller company, do another startup. And so I left Expedia in 2005 to co-found Zillow, uh, which we launched in 2006. And um, I stayed at Zillow for, I don't know, like 13, 14 years, Um, long time, was the CEO, took it public in 2011. We bought 17 companies. Um, It became a $10 billion public or $20 billion public company, a couple thousand employees. And then I left a couple of years ago to to do other stuff. Why do you think Zillow uh, was such an earth shattering kind of company that really changed how people view real estate? the voyeurism that the Zillow product leans into is very viral. There's a lot of, that's very alliterative as well. Um, so, and and we leaned into this a lot on the brand. And it's one of the things that I'm most proud of as, I mean, my first job was as CMO, chief marketing officer, and, and before I became CEO. And um, we built an incredible brand that's playful and also analytical. And actually it's, I mean, it's it's in the name Zillow. Most people don't know this, but Zillow is zillions of pillows, which is zillions is the left brain of real estate. It's all the data and quant side, 
and pillows is the right brain of real estate. It's the where you rest your head at night. It's the can I imagine my kids growing up in this house? And the brand uh, encompasses those two aspects of real estate. And you know, I mean, it culminated, of course, in like the SNL skit just last year about real estate porn and Zillow being having become kind of the national pastime. But anyway, I think the answer is that it it's become such a phenomenon because of the way the brand leans into that fun and frivolous side of real estate while not abandoning the serious aspect because it is an incredibly important financial decision. If you think about some of the most you know impactful experiences or lessons during your 13 years at uh, Zillow, you know what what were maybe one or two of those crucible moments and like an intense experience that helped shape your own leadership style? Well, 2008, the financial crisis was a debacle in the real estate industry. I mean, for those that don't, that weren't around or paying attention or don't remember it, I mean, the, there was a global meltdown and the epicenter of this meltdown was my industry. It was the real estate. And it's because many millions of people got mortgages that shouldn't have gotten mortgages and then they were foreclosed upon and then the banks collapsed and on and on. And, um, so those were heavy times at Zillow and we did a layoff from about 200 people to about 150 people. And, you know, it was not clear at all that the company was going to survive. We were only a two-year-old company at the time. And um, managing Zillow through that time of crisis was exhausting and, and, and also very rewarding. Um, and what I learned from that was the need to reconnect employees to the mission. It, it, it Some of the things that we've already been talking about, about, you know, whether it's uh, trying to get Mick and Keith to get along or um, trying to get the company to recover after a bunch of layoffs. It's like, hey guys, this is why we're here. We're here to try to empower people with access to information. We're here to help support each other and lift each other up. We're here to try to create a great place to work. Like let's stay focused and 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 work hard towards this common goal. And just so I understand, like keeping your employees or your team connected to the mission isn't something that you just do in the tough times, but it's something that sticks with you all the time now? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, every Zillow all hands meeting and every Picasso all hands meeting, we start by reciting the mission. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for Picasso, I've got it here in my home office on this note card, you know, Picasso, our mission, enrich lives by making second home ownership possible and enjoyable for more people. So like we start every meeting by reading that every board meeting, every every company meeting, et cetera. We did the same thing at Zillow with its mission. And it's a little weird. It's a little hokey. It's a little cultish, but it's also pretty effective. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this as an angel investor also that the the companies that are mission oriented, mm -hmm. they do a much better job of recruiting, retaining and engaging their employees and they build better products. And the companies that are financially motivated where the founders started the company to make themselves rich, those are the ones that do the worst. So you said you get you see a lot of that as an angel investor and you get a lot of deal flow and opportunities across your desk. When a new founder or a new team comes into your office, you know what are you looking for and how do you evaluate whether or not their core values actually mesh with the mission of the company you're hiring for? Or that you're going to fund. One thing I ask of founders is, what would I, what would you do if I told you you couldn't pursue this startup idea? You know, just for whatever reason, like you can't do this. And uh, I mean, one founder I remember he said to me, he's like, 
I couldn't, I can't even, like, I cannot conceive of that possibility. I was put on earth to solve this problem. I wake up every morning thinking about it. I go to sleep every night thinking about it. Like, I, I could not, I cannot abide by the the I, the concept of me not being able to pursue this idea. I love that. I mean, that's like ding, 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 you know, you know bingo. Um, so it's that type of founder commitment to solving a particular problem. That's, that's awesome. Um, you know, I'll give, and I'll give you another example. Um, I remember a friend of mine actually didn't, I, I wasn't an investor and I was not an investor in this company. I wish I had been because it sold for a lot of money. But um, a friend of mine was the founder of a company that made um, basically scheduling software for um, people that work in uh, fast food restaurants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you work at McDonald's, there's an employee app that you use and you open that app and it tells you when your shift is and it helps you switch shifts with other people and things like that. And um, I remember I was talking about his business and he was just so excited about it. And I'm like, this is an enterprise SaaS business. That's interesting. Like, you know, what's your customer retention like, and how do you grow your, your number of, of, uh, you know, of enterprise accounts. And he's like, no, 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 you understand this changes lives. Our service allows the, you know, a, a, a single parent who is juggling, caring for their, you know, their parents and grandparents and their kids. It lets them uh, ha have financial independence and scheduling flexibility. And he was just describing it with such zeal, such That's mission, right. you know, missionary zeal. I was like, wow, good for you. Cause like, I just see an enterprise SaaS business here with a big addressable market, but like, and he's like, no, 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 this is like, this is my mission. I was like, okay, good. You were put on earth to, to, to run this company at this time. Amazing. Like this will probably do well. And it did. But why did you pass? I, he he had already raised the round and I wasn't, I, I would have invested. I would have invested, but there wasn't like an active round when I was talking about, unfortunately. What other <laughs> kinds of, what other kinds of leadership qualities or other personal qualities do you look for in founders that, you know, you really like? I like people who have a chip on their shoulder and some grit and something you, to prove. What do you mean? Like, give me an example of that. Um, I'm thinking of another founder who, uh, was laid off by their prior company and it pissed him off. And he was like, they shouldn't have laid me off. You know, they went from 300 employees to 250. I shouldn't have, I was a, a top performer. I should, you know, I'm going to, and, and now I'm going to start this new company and I've got something to prove. I'm going to show the world that I'm worth something. And, you know, that's, that's awesome. And, and that, I mean, sometimes that grit and work ethic and competitiveness comes through in athletics Sometimes it comes through in academics or in extracurriculars. If you're interviewing someone straight out, you know, a young earlier in their career, um, but sometimes it's just from somebody who is pissed off and wants to show the world that they're worth it. So if somebody like failed before, they shouldn't be that afraid because the the silver lining could be that they are actually pissed off and they want to prove something even more because of that past failure. Yeah, I mean, past failure. I mean, I've invested in lots of startups where the CEO had a prior failure. Um, I've even invested in a couple where I was an investor in their prior failure. So it definitely depends why the company failed. Um, mm -hmm. but um, uh, but but grit and something to prove is is really important. it It can come from someone with a past failure. Um, it doesn't have to. So I mean, I feel like I have, Grit and and still, even though I've had successes, I still feel like what I have something. Grit? What is grit, Spencer? Grit is um, work ethic, a humble work ethic. 
So it's a, you know, somebody who has grit is somebody that thinks nothing, no, no, no job is beneath them. And, um, they're going to work super hard and, and, and be humble while they do it. I'm not sure if that's technically the definition of grit, but that's how I think of it. (laughs) I mean, quiet quitting, which is in the news a lot lately as this sort of trend or, you know, a thing that people are discussing is, is really very much the opposite of, of grit. (laughs) Um, What what is quiet quitting? Quiet quitting is, um, a phenomenon you might say of people staying at jobs and coasting and saying, I'm going to work nine to four, nine to five. I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do it pretty well. Uh, I'm not, I'm just, I, I wasn't put on earth to do this job. I have other things in my life that are important to me. And so I'm going to give it, you know, a B plus a minus, and that'll be that. Mm -hmm. And you know, people refer to this term is quiet quitting. It's become pretty controversial. People have been debating it. There are a bunch of TikToks that have gone viral of, of young people defending it and a bunch of um, old people like me saying, no, this is this is terrible. Yeah. You know? It sounds exactly opposite of what you look for in your mission-driven values. It, 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 it is it is pretty counter to, to what I'm looking for. I mean, I suppose that you know, certain people want to prioritize other things and live their life. That's fine. I don't really have a problem with them doing that. I just I'm just not going to give you money to invest in your company if that's your if that's your mentality. I get the sense that you enjoy coaching. Why? Do. Yeah. Why do you like that so much? I mean, that takes a lot of time and effort too. Why do you enjoy it? Um, I like the leverage that it gives me um, to, you know. I, so, so let me step back. Like, I, I played on the field at the professional level. I suited up every day for twenty something years. And when you do that, you get a lot of injuries. It's it's incredibly intensive, uh, physically, mentally, and um, and that was great. And I won some championships, and I'm super proud of the you know the time that I had and the teams that I got to play on. Um, now being in the coaching box upstairs, I can coach ten or a hundred different fields, and that's fun having that scalability. You know, having scaled myself, where whether it's Picasso or any of the hundred startups that I'm an investor in, or Dot LA, or any of the other companies where I'm a co-founder of, I can help each of those founding teams and 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 just the entire companies hopefully achieve their full potential but I can do it in a more scaled way and in a way that doesn't, that isn't all consuming of me the way being the CEO of a startup is. What is it that makes you a good coach? Is it just, you know, all these incredible past experiences or something else more deep? Um, yeah, no, I I don't think it's just the past experiences. Um, in fact, I've, I've, I've often like, like, for example, my, my daughter was super into gymnastics a couple of years ago. I went to a lot of UCLA gymnastics, um, meets and the the woman who was the coach of the girls or women's gymnastics team at UCLA I forget her name but she's one of the most round collegiate gymnastics coaches and she's never done gymnastics mm. and you know there are like she can't do a cartwheel supposedly and there are lots of coaches like that that can't play football can't play baseball you know can't play basketball but they're still great coaches so it's not really the directly relevant experiences though sometimes that is useful i think it's i think empathy is probably the most important skill required for coaching um it is um 
team building. It is just being a good listener, being able to play back to people things that that they say it's it's a therapist role. I mean, it's I've never been a therapist, but I'm guessing I guess maybe I have been a therapist. Maybe I am a therapist. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and your mom was a teacher. So like empathy, <laughs> all of those things, you maybe picked yeah. up a little bit from her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what makes somebody um, like a good student as if you're a coach, what makes them a good receptive person? Yeah, that? it's a great question. Actually, this is one of the things I look for when I'm angel investing is coachability. And it is it is very obvious, even in an initial pitch uh, for an angel investment, whether a founder is going to be coachable or not. Um, you know, when when an investor raises an objection, for example, they say, you know, why are you focusing on bringing this product to consumers? Why not businesses? Or why are you so anxious to expand internationally, not you know, focus on the U.S. first? Or you know, any any objection, you can pretty quickly see from the founder if they. You know, if they pause for a second and give that some thought and acknowledge the objection, they can ref- and it's OK if they refute it. But if they do that humbly and by accepting the uh, intelligence of the premise of the objection, mm-hmm. then they're probably coachable. If they reflexively, you know, dismiss it in, a, in an arrogant way, then they're probably not coachable. And so there's almost a, a level of emotional immaturity that really would turn you off as a coach if they reflexively, uh, you know, basically disagreed or tried to show that, you know, they were almost always right and they really knew what they were talking about without reflecting. Yeah, yeah and that's exactly right. And, you know, what's surprising to me um, now that I've got about 100 of these investments is there there doesn't seem to be much correlation on between age and coachability. I mean, you might think to yourself, I don't know. You might you might think young people are going to be more coachable. You might think old people are not, uh, or not old people, but people in their you know whatever mm-hmm. second, third startup, forties, fifties, sixties, even. Um, uh, and I've got I've I've seen it all now. I've seen you know, super young, arrogant people who are not really coachable, and uh, and I've seen the opposite as well. I, I haven't found much correlation on gender or age. It's so interesting. So many decades ago, I, w- I was a case writer at HBS, and every time I go back and I visit, I, I think the place looks exactly like how Central Casting in Hollywood would design it. I mean, it's gorgeous. You can eat off the ground. But you were a professor there. Yeah. You know, what, what was it like teaching there, and why did you decide you wanted to do something like that? I went to Harvard undergrad, but I never went to business school. And I, when I left Zillow, I called Harvard and said, I'd like to teach. Um and I said, what are you good at? <laughs> and I said, I'm pretty good at running, pretty good at running big tech companies. And so they let me create this class called Managing Tech Ventures, which is basically how to run a big tech company. And they gave me some case writers uh, to write a couple cases on companies that I had had experience in. So we wrote two cases on Zillow. Hmm. We wrote a case on TripAdvisor, where I was on the board. We wrote a case on Zulily, where I was on the board. And we wrote a couple other cases from other startups and, and companies that I had been involved in. And the reason it was a fun course for me was I was able to codify 20 years of my career into cases and really teach what I learned throughout my career using the case study method to other MBAs or to, to you know, to, to MBAs. And it was fun. It was the short answer. It was, it was fun. I learned a lot about myself. And it, it, when you teach, you learn. Were, were you a little nervous or scared the first time you got up in front of 90 students, like because it was such a different kind of environment? 
Yes, absolutely. I, I always, I still get nervous when I speak in front of audiences of any size, um, even though I've done a lot of it. Um, but teaching, uh, teaching is, is scary for sure. And this past semester I taught at Harvard college, I had about 50 undergrads and I taught a, a course there called, um, startups from idea to exit, basically how to do a startup. And that's Harvard College's first ever class on startups. As I mentioned before, it's a liberal arts school. And so they generally frown upon uh, practical education. But I was able to persuade them to let me create this course. And it was really successful. And, and I'm glad I did it. What did you learn about yourself during this teaching process, aside from the fact that you know that you get a little nervous speaking? I don't know if you're an introvert or extrovert, but what did you learn about yourself? Um, I probably learned that um, I, I still have like I, I still know very little I guess um that what do you uh, mean by that well well like um well like for example I don't know I, I I taught um a case on Wayfair for example and how they manage their supply chain to manufacture and then distribute furniture and I, I didn't know anything about that you know and um I had to read the case like a student and figure out how to teach it and and communicate it. And, you know, here's a, a totally different industry than anything I've had experience in and, um, uh, you know, facing totally different problems. I mean, I've never been in a physical, a physical business before. I've always been in digital businesses before. And so it was brand new, brand new stuff. I, I just joined the board of a company called Vara, which is a challenger bank. It's like a digital bank. Um, and I have very little fintech experience previously. And so now I'm learning what's it like to run a bank. And now that I'm on the board of directors of a bank. And so like there are still huge categories of things and industries, even within tech, that I'm a total novice on. Gaming is another one. We taught some case studies on gaming, which is a huge sector of tech, hundreds and hundreds of billions of market cap in gaming. I've never done anything in gaming. I don't know anything about gaming. Do you, do you still like learning today as much as you did when you were actually a student at Harvard? Yes, I do. I do. Um, I like learning new things and meeting new people. And and yes, and I guess this comes back to the conversation about liberal arts education and learning how to learn and and developing a, a, you know, a lifelong love of learning and inquisitiveness. And just going back to you investing in founders, what are some of the most painful and perhaps common, you know, leadership or other kinds of challenges that these rising star leaders and founders make? Gosh, there's so many. Um, big mistakes they make are not recognizing, basically leaving the pitcher in for too long. Mm -hmm. So especially if someone's nice, which you know most people are nice, they have a hard time recognizing that an employee is no longer right for the role. Mm -hmm. And and especially if they've developed a relationship with that person and they're friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so many startups are founded by friends and so many of the early recruits are friends or friends of friends. And, you know, the, the reason why this is such a acute issue at high growth, early stage companies is as companies change, jobs change, and sometimes people don't scale to that next level. So somebody who maybe is perfectly good at their job, um, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember at one of these companies, there was a director of email marketing, for example, that that the company hired. The person was totally great at sending a, a simple email newsletter like once a week. Um, and they were terrific at it and they got a good review. And then, you know, at the end of their six months and then by a year later, 
email marketing had evolved to, to be really lifecycle marketing. It had to be include push notifications for real-time activities on the service. It became uh, customized notifications and emails that are really targeted, not just like a dumb newsletter. And it became much more of a, the function had had grown quite a bit and the person was not scaling to that new role. And so the the, the CEO had to fire this, this perfectly good director of email marketing, nothing changed about their skill set, but the role changed as the company grew and the product grew. And the, and, um, and so recognizing that and firing people is really hard, especially for, for nice people. And, and overall, like when should a founder start to think seriously about building a culture? Um, as early as possible, probably five or 10 employees. I mean, the first couple employees create the culture without realizing that they're creating the culture. Um, and then, I mean, you're like, uh, I don't know, it's like explorers in a new land, you know, the, 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 the pioneers go and they set up their tents and they find the water source and they, you know, they build the, what, you know, whatever the irrigation. And then like, before you know it, like you're now establishing laws and mores and traditions and so it's it's pretty quick. It's it's like within the first five or ten people, you're going to want to start thinking about culture and how to curate it, and how to make sure that it is consistent with the values that you want as a company, and also consistent with the product. Hmm. So the best cultures at companies are ones that are very in tune with the product itself. So for example, um, you know Zillow, uh, the Zillow product is all about tra- information transparency. It's about turning on the lights in the dark room. And so it was very important, like that's what the website does. That's what the mobile app does, right? It it empowers people with access to information. And so we had to run the company very transparently because that's what the whole product is about. And so what does that mean? It means making sure that your senior management is very accessible to employees. It means um, not keeping secrets from employees and, and having very open Inform, you know, access to information, which gets harder as you get bigger and as you become publicly traded. But anyway, the product and the culture have to be in sync. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And it, I bet it's not that easy sometimes because there are certain things you just can't really share or there's always a trade-off of whether or not you you know should share it. Yes, I worried that about that a lot at Zillow in the run-up to going public. And it turned out not to be as big an issue as I feared. And the reason for that is I... Like like for the couple of years before we went public, we would do these all hands meetings, and I would give very detailed financial information. I'd say, oh, we you know this much in in cash and EBITDA and revenue and runway and whatever. And obviously, that all had to be phased out as we got close to getting public. And then once we were public, it turned out that employees didn't actually care about any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. What employees really care about is the mission, the strategy. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? And what it means for them individually. And um, all of those things, not only can you continue to communicate about once you're public, but you're actually better at communicating about those issues once you're public because a CEO of a public company is always in comms mode. He or she is always talking to investors, talking to the media, talking to employees or, or recruit recruited candidates. And so whereas when you're private, you, you know, you, you, the only forcing function of being a good communicator is when is when and if you choose to do company wide meetings and many startups don't. So I think I feel like our communication, our internal communication with the company actually got better once we were public because I was just more attuned to comms than when we were private. 
Interesting. And I'd love to hear about what's next. I mean, tell me a little bit about 75 and Sunny. 75 and Sunny is my family office. So it's my personal venture capital firm. Um, we invest in lots of startups, usually early stage, but sometimes late stage. Um, about a quarter of our investments are in LA where I live. So we over-index on, on Los Angeles. Um, about a quarter are in prop tech. So because of Picasso and Zillow, I see a lot of real estate deals, but about a quarter are in future of work. So these are companies that are helping make companies more effective. About a quarter are in the creator economy or sort of the intersection of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Um, and then we also incubate companies. So we've launched five companies in the last three years. Picasso is the most well-known of them. .LA is the news site that covers the LA tech ecosystem. Recon Food is a food social network. Um, Path Travel is a travel social network. And then Q, Q-U-E-U-E, Q is a streaming discovery service. So it's trying to solve the what to watch problem, which so many of us have, you know, oh, what's, you know, what should I watch? Oh, watch this thing. Oh, is that on Netflix or is it on Hulu or is it on Amazon? Like I can't keep track. And, and so it's a social TV guide that lets you figure out what to watch. What is Kona? Um, Kona is one of the future of work startups. Uh, it's a super cool company founded Actually, I've, I've told a couple stories about the founder of Kona without naming him. Um, so what Kona does is it is basically a Slack plugin to teach emotional intelligence to managers. What? So, You're telling me you could teach emotional intelligence? It, well, the, it, not only can, can you teach it, but the AI can teach it. So, um, you know, what we're trying to do with Kona or what Kona is trying to do, I'm just an investor. I, I'm not, it's not my company, is replicate the EQ that you get from an in-office experience. So like when we used to be in offices, you could kind of walk by someone and you could kind of tell from their body language that they're having a bad day or having a good day, or they wanted you to say, Hey, what's up? Or they didn't want, right. And so what Kona does is it through Slack it and other services, it asks the employee questions like, you know, how are you feeling? What's your day like? You know, it integrates with your calendar and then it passes that feedback to the manager in Slack. And then when I'm slacking with an employee, it actually pops up, kind of whispers in my ear, like, hey, you're being a little vague in your communication style. This employee really prefers direct communication. Like maybe you should just say what you're trying to say. Or it basically gives them like coaching advice through the AI um, to improve manager, uh, manager employee relationships. That, that's so cool. I mean, do you see this as evolving that, you know, this kind of technology is just going to get better and better and it really can help people? you know, be more empathic and emotionally intelligent and learn how to communicate more effectively to different kinds of people. I think so and hope so. At Zillow, we did something called insights training where every employee took a personality test and it taught you which color energies you led with, red, yellow, green, or blue. And I, I lead with red energy, which the, the expression for red energy is be brief, be bright, be gone. And so that's how I want people to communicate with me. I want them to be brief. I want them to be bright. And then I want them to be gone. And the reason I, I tell the story is that we had these little um, like stress you balls. I hate this podcast because I'm going into <laughs> so much detail. There is there is a lot of there's a lot of yellow and and uh, and green energy in this in, in this podcast. But I'm 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 doing okay. I'm, I'm hanging in there. Uh, but it but but it is but for people like me, it's it's very stressful actually. Um, these types of conversations. Um, are, are you are you stressed? At, how are you feeling as somebody like me asking you these kinds of questions? Uh, I don't love it. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't come naturally to me. I, I would rather not 
be talking about myself. <laughs> would you would you rather be leading the podcast? Would you rather be yes. with somebody yes. else or answer I, questions? I would rather be leading the podcast and have it be ten minutes, not an hour. <laughs> that's that's the way I that's the way I roll. Um, your, but your but, checks in the mail. Your checks. <laughs> but but um, but but so we we kept these like uh, these stress balls at everyone's desk, and so the reason we did it is when if if I walked up to an employee's desk and I saw they. They led with yellow energy, for example. That's like sunny, happy disposition. That means the way that I need to communicate with them is very different than if they lead with red energy. Um, and so we role played these things like, like cancel a project that employee has been working on for six months. And the way that you would do that is very different if the employee is red, blue, yellow, green versus if they're you know blue, red, yellow, green. And so anyway, so Kona tries to replicate that in a virtual in office environment. <laughs> and so the good news is we only have an hour and a half left. So, <laughs> so, so, so how do you enjoy, we got maybe a question or two, two minutes. How do you enjoy yeah. spending your time these days? I spent a lot of time with Picasso and I'm very passionate about the mission. I think it has the potential to help, help tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people attain second home ownership, which they couldn't ordinarily attain. And so I'm, I spent a lot of time with Picasso. Um, and by and the way, which place, which you said you had a place in Malibu? I have one in Malibu. I have one in Malibu. Yeah. Are you allowed to say which one or is that? Uh, it's called, sure. It's called Seascape. I think now that all eight chairs have been sold, it's not on the web anymore, but it's on the beach in Malibu. And it's a great example. It's like, I would never uh, you know, spend the money to buy a, I think it's like a $6 million house in Malibu, mm-hmm. but you know, for five, six, seven hundred thousand $700,000 with a mortgage, I would love to own, you know, six weeks a year at a six or seven million dollar house in Malibu. So it's a perfect use case. And and you and take the whole like family that. and the kids and they yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah. What what's next for you? I mean, any political aspirations down the road? Or? <laughs> um, I I don't think so, but who knows? Um, I mean, what's next for me? I'm just kind of kind of keep doing what I'm doing. I'm investing, coaching, trying to help a hundred or so companies achieve their full potential. Um, making breakfast for my kids every day and uh, taking them to the bus and sitting on a couple boards. So um, I, I, as I said, I suited up every day and played on the field for a long time. And uh, now I'm in the, in the coach's box. Thanks for joining everyone to share your thoughts about this episode or questions for any of our guests you may join our community of imperfect leaders striving for greatness at www.imperfectleaders.com. You'll then have access to all past episodes, special content, and invitation-only roundtables with the country's most successful leaders, business school professors, and executive coaches. See you next week, everyone.